Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi. Uh, I'm Brady Huggett. I'm a senior editor at Nature Biotechnology, and you are about to listen to a conversation uh, between me and Jeremy Levin. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jeremy Levin, wasn't he on First Rounders already? Yes, he was, years ago. This isn't exactly First Rounders. Uh, I'm putting it in the First Rounders feed because it is a one-on-one interview, and it sort of follows that format, but it isn't a First Rounders there were some things that I wanted to ask Jeremy about, um, about the perception of the biopharma industry by the general public. I wanted to ask him about that. And there are some things that he wanted to talk about, such as the biopharma industry's response to COVID-19, to SARS-CoV-2. And it seemed like the best way to do that would be just to have a conversation, record it, and make a podcast out of it, which is what this is. So, yeah, I mean, he starts off by talking about, in January, at the board meeting for bio... Uh, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, the industry sort of gathered around and said, this virus is coming to the United States. It is going global. What resources can we reallocate toward this fighting this virus? What can we do? What can we repurpose toward vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics? And he also said, now, if we had had a warning six months earlier that this virus was coming, things would look a lot different in the USA than it does right now. And he sort of alluded to certain government agencies that have been disbanded or or underfunded. And I kept saying, I mean, are you saying there's a failure of government here? And he wouldn't quite go that far, but that's seemed to be the hint, right? And you can hear me trying to get at that as this conversation goes on. You listen and tell me what you think. That's the first part. Um, The second part, we sort of talked about why is this industry, why is the biopharma industry so disliked and distrusted? And what is it about this industry that leaves itself open to conspiracy theory. We talked about that. And also, what can the industry do to rebuild its reputation? So that's what you're about to hear. This is a conversation with Jeremy Levin, chairman of BIO. Enjoy. Uh Uh-huh. That did it. That did it. It was Chrome versus Safari. And how's... uh, Nice to see you. Nice to see you. How's the, how can you, can you hear all right? I can hear you loud and clear. Can you hear me? Yeah. You ready? I'm ready anytime. I think the best place to start is where the biopharma industry found itself as 2020 started. And I think the word you used to describe it or words was that the industry was roundly disliked. And uh, if we think back to the 2016 election, you know, you have, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, two diametrically opposed politicians, both saying that drug pricing was going to be a problem and that was a, that was going to be a focus of their campaign. 
it's four years later. Um, not much has changed. It looked like this was again going to be on the table um, for 2020. It's difficult to know now what exactly November will look like, but you know the, the idea that drug prices are too high has not gone away. And as you mentioned in the last Gallup poll, of 25 industries, the pharmaceutical industry ranked last in uh, perception from the public. That's below tobacco companies. That's below oil. So it, this industry is disliked, right? Right. It, it, it's a sad fact. Uh, there's yeah. nothing to, we can't argue otherwise. And so Congress is going after it, as you said. And as this industry is perceived in that way, COVID-19 happens. SARS-CoV-2 happens. And the, there's this massive focus on the industry all of a sudden, like, what can we do about this virus, which is tearing through the world? So sort of take me through what happened since then, as far as what the industry has tried to do, what politicians have tried to do, and what the, sort of the country has tried to do altogether. Uh, so your characterization is 100% correct. As we entered 2020, we entered in a position where we were the least respected industry in the United States. That's number one. Number two, we had a, a terribly difficult position in the minds of the Senate, the Congress, and the White House. They were all facing the election. They still are. But at that moment, the common denominator was the fact that they were focused on pricing. And during this period of time, you saw a number of different bills being introduced in the Congress, and then subsequently in Senate, and then statements finally from the White House saying that pricing had to come down, that this was just a, a blanket statement without any really appreciation of where this might impact the industry. So in effect, during this period of the last 20 years, effectively, we had as a group a group of industries, large pharmaceutical companies and small, had lost the respect. So this this moment in time, we, as a backdrop, China started to show that it had this terrible uh, event of coronavirus. Deaths were happening, cities were closing, and yet America wasn't seeming to take much notice. This was quite remarkable. That's not the case with the biotech world. There were many different companies asking some very hard questions. How could you actually have this outbreak in China? And what were they doing in China? And how would it affect the United States? And one of the first meetings of the bio board in the beginning of Jan and the beginning of this year was to ask the question, what are we doing about this? Literally, this was before it was a, an issue here, before we'd even discussed what kinds of responses should be taken. And before we had much knowledge of what was going on in the CDC, what the FDA was thinking, BADA, NIH, or anybody. But at a board meeting of bio, we felt that we had to get together and make a decision that we were going to, we were going to make an impact. I mean, what was said at that meeting? When that question was put out there, what are we doing? The question was, what are we doing? And the response was, we better find out what others are doing what are the resources within the biotech industry and the pharma industry to respond? And what does this mean? What are the resources in the government that might be there to help us? Mm -hmm. And without even thinking about it, this was a completely spontaneous uh, 
reaction. There was no, nobody was forcing us to do this. This was, we need to step forward. Absolutely spontaneous. We need to do something because it's a real, we can see a tsunami coming. So what Bio did was to identify individuals within its organization who could put together an initial assembly of all of what was out there in biotech. We didn't know what there was. And then secondarily to understand what might be important if this tsunami hit the United States and indeed, as it was hitting in China, what could we do to help? Mm -hmm. So the first thing we did was to put a date in early March to say we're going to hold, we're going to convene all of those companies that are in the United States who have an interest and a capability to bring together the skills that they have and ask the question, how can we interface them with the various government agencies? In yeah. order to do that, we had to then poll our industry because we didn't know. There are 800, 900 companies out there. We don't know what the, all of them are doing it all the time. Uh, and we ran that poll. And so this is therapeutics, vaccines, diagnostics, all three? All three. All three. And then also asking the question of others, what could, if you were, if this hit, what could you do to augment what you have could you change from cancer th treatment into yep. virology? Yep. And we had initially thought, we didn't know the timing of this, we thought initially we might have this as a face-to-face -face meeting in Washington, but events overtook us. We very quickly saw as these results were coming back in, as we were polling the companies, we could see so the first cases hit the West Coast. We knew it was absolutely imperative not to meet face-to-face. -face. We couldn't do it in Washington. But we had several things that we had to do. Number one, get that assemblage together. We got it. There were over 60 different companies, roughly, doing various things. Number two, we had to organize this under one individual who had the responsibility to coordinate through bio all the different responses. And in order to do that, I asked George Skangos, who's the chairman and CEO of VER, whether he would be prepared to come step forward, take on what is obviously not his day job, and to help coordinate and lead this group through what we I felt was going to be an extremely complex set of uh, issues facing us. Yeah, and so I, I remember the Skangos, is a, I thought, was a great choice. He'd run small biotechs, Exelixis. He'd run larger biotechs. He had a lot of farm experience. So this seemed like a really good choice for someone who had broad-reaching experience of how to produce drugs, both um, like the innovative end and at scale. Is that the reason yeah. why he was chosen? And also his demeanor. George is a straight shooter. He knows exactly how to organize large organizations. Yeah. And in addition to which, his company, Ver, is an infectious disease. And almost as a, as a consequence of picking him, we catalyzed with his team. He has a super team that he surrounded himself with. His board supported that clearly. He stepped forward and we held this event in Washington, D.C. Diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines. In addition to which, we brought all Dr. Bird, we brought Bada, we brought a whole series of people from the FDA, and indeed, what was going to be a conference of only 100 people really blossomed, and we had over 300. 
an event that was seminal because what it did is it started to catalyze dialogue between different companies. And almost immediately, a company that wasn't even in uh, this area, Al Nylum, set up a partnership with Ver. So John Mariganori and Ver uh, and uh, George Skangas at Ver got together and with before they'd even written a contract, they'd agreed and announced an attack to create better vaccines for this disorder. And this set the tone because you now had two biotech leaders saying, we're going for it. And so, and this is after the virus had been sequenced. So that was known and everybody could jump right in. That, that is correct. At that stage, Moderna was actually, the, the company Moderna was already knew the sequence. They were starting their vaccine program. You had, but it wasn't just vaccines actually, Brady. I think you need to think about this in terms of what's superly helpful immediate term, the immediate yeah. term, the front line with the doctors and the nurses who were just desperate. We watched in Mount Sinai, New York, as you know, they had no tests available for them, and yet they were having hundreds of patients coming to the to the patient doors. They had no uh, to the emergency room. They had no ventilators, not sufficient ventilators. Nobody had prepared them. The consequence that we saw across many centers in the United States. So they were the front line. Behind that, you had the companies building the armamentarium. What were the new diagnostics? We fast forward to today, there are over 70 different new diagnostics being developed. You fast forward to today, at the time, there are only a handful of potential vaccines. Now we're talking upwards of 40 different vaccine programs. You also think they're somewhat close to 200 different new approaches to medicines for this. All of that, all of that, Brady, within a period of no more than a month and a half, two months. Now, had we been warned, had we been galvanized six months before, I think we'd be in a very different place. I think we, the large producers of diagnostics, Abbott, Roche, would have had really good, substantive amounts of uh, tests out on the marketplace. Today, we know it's the 20th of April. We know that one week from now, Abbott will have somewhere else some tens of millions of tests available for serum tests for those who have this disorder. We know that Roche is producing hundreds of millions of these tests. This is going, we will get there. But during that period of time, you know, we've had 20,000 deaths and we've had yeah. so many others that have been infected. It's quite remarkable. When, but when you say, had we known, what, what, you know, had we been warned, what do you mean by that? We, I mean, it wasn't as if the virus just showed up on the western side of the United States and nobody knew it was coming. People knew it was coming. So do you mean like an official warning? Well, let's, let's go back over the last several decades. We've known over the last decades that one of the most terrifying things that a nation can face is a pandemic of this kind. We've known it. Yeah. SARS came and went. H1N1 came and went. And... It wasn't of this caliber, but all of the tripwires were put in place to say, if this comes, then we're going to do something about it. The tripwires included work at the F at CDC. It included a White House office specifically devoted to this. It included mechanisms at the FDA and BADA and NIH. Unfortunately, in the first instance, it wasn't clear 
what the nature of this disorder was, given the information coming from China. Secondarily, once it became clear, it became apparent that many of the mechanisms that had been set up in years gone by were simply no longer there. Some had been yeah. disbanded, others weren't functional, but the reality was we were unprepared for what we had said was coming. So are you, you're saying, uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm sort of picturing this group of biopharma executives all getting together saying, we know that this is happening. We see what's happening in China. It's definitely coming to our shores. There's no way to think that it will not come to the United States. But what you were missing was some sort of um, directive to say, begin work. Is that right? Like, like almost like a federal directive to say, start working with the CDC, start working with the NIH. We have to get these tests in line. But instead, you're sort of doing it on your own? Well, less than on our own, what we did was we said, look, we need to coalesce. Nobody else, nobody's doing this. We need to coalesce all the key parties here. We've got a great partner in Tony Fauci. Yeah. Dr. Birx is there, great people. These are terrific people. We know they know what the disorder is. Let's help them. Let them. Let us show them the resources that we have to bring to the table. And then let's just go for it. Now, had... We be, I believe that had we had a couple, three, four months looking back, uh, adequate time to prepare, a lot of what we see today may have been different. An example of that would have been Abbott would have galvanized its ability to generate the, the diagnostics it, it had. You have to take your hat off to uh, the White House who triggered when Roche came to them and said, we've got a diagnostic, you've got a problem help us with the FDA, they did do that. Yeah. There's no doubt. So there was a lot of, let's get this fixed now. The difficulty was that all of the mechanisms that were put in place over the last several years, all of the warnings that were coming to us from China were largely not acted on until that suddenly the enemy was at our shore. So that's hard to be prepared it's it's like a, it's a difficult thing. Um, it's hard to be prepared when you don't know what the virus will be, even though we knew it was going to be a coronavirus. I mean, everybody said that basically. Um, you, know, you know, it's it's an interesting fact that you say. If you look back and ask the questions of nine eleven, we knew what that monster was. We knew what Al Qaeda was. We knew how bad they were. We had the world's best military, and we still do. We have every single element of the, in, of the political will to combat it. And yet, because we never believed that it would attack us, 9-11 came and changed our lives forever. But everything we knew about these people. Now, here you have a situation we knew about the virus. We knew we had to prepare for it. For decades, we've been worried about it. And yet, at the time when it came to us, we were unprepared to act immediately on it. And the consequences of that are now being sorted out. It's you know, to the credit of those who leaned forward and developed the, developed the industrial capacity to start immediately doing these tests. They will be there. They're not yet there. They're not yet there. It would have been helpful had we acted on the plans that we had before to stop this. It's no good looking back, though, Brady. You have to look forward at this stage. Yeah. 
I mean, there will be a looking back for sure when this is done. There's going to be some sort of reckoning about government response, biopharma response, uh, both. But do you do you want to talk about hydroxychloroquine and how that has rolled into this? Well, I think hydroxychloroquine is a story of great concern. We one of the beauties of the FDA that was really that all of us respect and have always respected is the ability to act on scientific information, knowing that the benefit risk that accrues from any medicine. And at times it's actually very difficult because you have patients who really want a medicine and the FDA has to adjudicate what have they learned from the past about that medicine? Could it be applied? What's the risk? And I think all of us in the industry have the, the highest regard the FDA's process. And by the way, it's improved dramatically over the last 10, 15 years. It's got better and better and better. Yeah, so, as far as speed, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Hats off to them. What occurred here with hydroxychloroquine is a, a story which will be published and will be discussed. It resembles a little bit about what happened with the, the episode in 1998, when The Lancet published a paper by one professor, one doctor about the link between vaccines and autism, a completely a paper that didn't have peer review, was completely uncontrolled, and it wasn't until 2010 that it was debunked and the paper thrown out. Effectively, a 12-year period during which you saw this enormous upsurge in the myth that vaccines lead to autism. And it's a myth, and we know that. Yeah. But yet tens of thousands of children have had complications from the measles, the mumps, and all the disorders that were completely unnecessary. Now here, again, in, on the 19th, on the, sorry, on the 17th of March, we have 29 patients published uh, a paper published in France on 29 patients in Marseille where they say, hey, presto, hydroxychloroquine will now cure these patients. They submit that for publication. Within a day and a half, it's accepted for publication, which means that it was barely, barely in peer, yeah. peer review. It gets published, and in the meantime, somebody tells the president that there is a cure. The president announces, and probably in the best will, that he feels that he's, somebody's told him that there is a cure. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, by the 20th, when they publish, he'd already announced. Now, from that moment on, you see Twitters, you see significant discussions, you see massive diversion of resources into trying to understand, does this drug affect patients? Yes or no? Is it something that is actually going to be a valid treatment? We didn't know the dose. We don't know when it should be given to the, to the patient. And we don't even know that it's effective. Yeah. The consequence of that is that tens of thousands of doctors and nurses started trying to see, did it work? Because they were in desperate. They had no other tools a diversion. And I think this story will play out because there are some really serious players doing a very, very thorough job of assessing, is it a clinical trial or not? And of course, the FDA 
in the onslaught of a situation where people are saying this is a valid drug, you need to get it going, it's, there's evidence for it, gave an emergency approval that it might be used. But I think that there were a lot of care and thinking needs to be taken into this drug. This, there is very, we need to have clear evidence that it works. In the meantime, you see the conservative view published a few days ago, given by the company Gilead, where their program in Chicago, 120 patients, open label, they said, look, this is interesting. We do not have definitive results. Let's wait until we get better results before we say we have something. And to be perfectly honest, the results are very interesting. Yeah. Remdesivir yeah. may be an important contributor to med near-term medicines. Yeah. But do you, so I, I think the question for me is, do you think hydroxychloroquine is worth investigating? I think that the approach should not have been adopted the way it was. No. I believe that there are tools today that we didn't have years ago, and I'm going to publish on this. That is, we have artificial intelligence, tools of artificial intelligence that can sift through hundreds of thousands of papers tens of thousands of clinical trials and ask the simple question, is there a modicum of evidence that it does or doesn't work? Based on this, a serious clinical trial could have been done extremely quickly. Instead of having an anecdotal report of 29 patients in an uncontrolled situation, which is published without peer review. Yeah. And I believe that, that that kind of a rigor in a modern world is what should happen. Indeed, Brady, those tools today are available. They are completely available. And we, can, we could use them to adjudicate which of the different existing drugs should be tried. So I, I want to ask, because you mentioned the tie into autism and vaccines is uh, super interesting. And I want to talk about two things. So when this, when this uh, paper comes out, this French paper that suggests that hydrochloroquine and azithromycin, the ZPAC, in combination can help fight uh, COVID-19, it was put together by two guys, one of which is a Bitcoin investor. He's an MD, but he's not an epidemiologist. He's not a real researcher. And another guy is a New York lawyer who had some sort of loose tie to Spark and Stanford as a consultant. These are not what you would consider experts in the field. They put a Google Doc together and said, hey, we should consider these drugs. They seem to be helping from this paper that we've seen. That got picked up by other people in the tech industry. Elon Musk tweeted it out, and that's how it eventually made its way, we think, up to the president's level. But the question is, and the same thing with autism, right? The link between autism and vaccines has been debunked for years, but it doesn't matter. That has still taken hold. And the question I have is, why is this industry so uh, vulnerable to those sorts of conspiracy theories? Boy, that's, had, that's an I mean, interesting I, question. Well, let, let, let me give you a couple examples of wh why I think that is. Number one is the FDA is a black box to your average person on the street. Pharmaceutical companies are kind of a black box. They don't really, the average person on the street does not understand what a phase one, phase two, phase three is. They just know that these companies have a lot of power and they make a lot of money and they're the ones that withhold the drug from you or give it to you. And maybe pharmaceutical companies give you cancer, then cure it. All these things that you hear all around. And of course, there are things like Purdue Pharma. You know, they flooded the country with opioids and we have a massive problem because of it. We know that, yes, pharma companies definitely do gouge on prices. We've seen it. We've had, I mean, the EpiPen debacle, that's over and over and over. 
So the perception now, which ties back to our original thing in the beginning here, is the perception of this industry is very, very low. And all people want to think, especially in times of need like this, these dire straits, is that they've found something that others are withholding from them. Well, I, I think that's a very good thought. I didn't really consider it in that way. I think in many ways, you are right. There's a tieback. What's more significant here in my mind is that by stepping forward now, by really putting ourselves in the front line, I think we can absolutely demonstrate that we have the right and the intent to really do good. Nobody asks the com these companies to do it. Nobody's talking about, I'm going to make billions of dollars out of this. Not a single company. They're all saying, what can we do to help? So I think, Brady, you may be right that that suspicion, the black box of the FDA, which is, of course, much like the black box of any uh, of the airline industry. Nobody yeah, knows our plane flies. Yeah. Any big company. It's a difficult one for people to see into. But at the end of the day, what people really need to do is they need to have the trust that what the industry is saying is absolutely golden. And by stepping forward, I believe we're going to start to push back that clock, really get it back to where it should be. Let us start on a level playing field, believe what we're doing here is very real. It's our children, it's our grandchildren, it's our cousins, it's our parents, it's our aunts, it's our brothers, it's our sisters, it's our family who are getting hit by this. It's not as if we're developing drugs for somebody else. We're developing them for ourselves. We need them as much as you or the public need them. It's, it's, no, it's not as if you are producing a car that somebody buys and walks off. This is something that I know that a medicine that if we develop for COVID will have a direct application and I want it for my mom and I want it for my kids and I want it for my uncle and my aunt. And I don't want anybody to say that I'm doing it for any other reason than to help those folks. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
is it fair to say that the biopharma industry understands it has been given a golden opportunity as poorly as it was thought of in January? It now has a chance to reset its own narrative by providing a vaccine, therapeutics at work, you know, Gilead, for instance, tests that, that I mean, our country has not had the ability to test and Abbott is trying to fill that void. Is it fully aware that it has this opportunity in front of it? You know, the answer is no. The answer is different. On that day at that board meeting, not a single person spoke of that. They all, every single CEO said, let's go for it. We can make a difference here. So as a secondary effect of that, it's possible that people will start to, bit by bit, start to respect the industry again. But I can tell you, I was at that meeting, I chaired that meeting, and sitting around the table, there wasn't a single voice about how do we take advantage of this. To the contrary, everybody said, let's jump on this, let's make a difference now, let's stop this horrible thing happening. And that, by the way, has been the experience that I've had over 30 years in this industry. I've never met people who don't go there. I mean, Brady, you and I have spoken about this. People go into the lab, they constantly fail. Yeah. They constantly fail. What takes them the next day is the belief that they can do something special. And the next day after that. And here, for the first time in many years, there's an absolute acute need, and they dive into it. And they, yeah. dive, they dive into it. Um, back to this idea of, Reestablishing trust, right? Yes. So uh, I was at the J.P. Morgan conference, uh, not the J.P. Morgan. I was in San Francisco while J.P. Morgan went on, and I was at the Biotech Showcase conference, and there was a plenary session, and you were on it, and Jim Greenwood was on it, and uh, maybe six or seven other people on the on the stage, and it became clear watching it. There's this narrative right now about the industry, and half the people in the industry seem to think that we can turn around and say. Um, I know you think that we are gouging on prices, but you don't understand that the PBMs take a big cut. There's a long line between the drug developer and the patient, and there's a lot of people who take money out of there. And you don't understand that we have to have a high reward at the end if we're going to be able to innovate. Innovation costs money. And there's another group that seems to be saying, this industry is incentivized incorrectly, as you said. This industry is incentivized. I'm talking about the CEOs, like pharma CEOs. They're incentivized by earnings. They're incentivized by returning money to their shareholders. And that means they do things to sort of protect the share price and boost, boost earnings, as opposed to incentivized to add seven drugs to their pipeline in a year, treat 50,000 patients successfully in a certain indication. Those incentives are separate from money, right? They're tied together, but they're separate. And it seemed to me that bio or the industry itself is split along that line. The people who want to um, continue to point the finger at someplace else. And another group that wants to say, you know what, we've done some things in the past that have not been great. And we need to clean that up and focus on calling out price gouging, which bio has started to do. And I'm asking, is that actually an accurate perception of mine about what's happening in the industry? Well, if, if you were to take a snapshot at that time, you could say that. However, I'd ask you to do a different thing. I'd ask you to look at what the change, the change that has occurred in the leadership across the industry who focus now increasingly on demanding and delivering innovation. 
investors who are demanding and delivering innovation. And then at the same time, the link that's occurring with patients. Now, that snapshot of yours in January could not have been take, been the same 10 years ago because there'd be only one answer there. Let's make a profit. We know yeah. that. So this is an evolution and people like myself and other folk who take this very seriously understand that we're not going to win anything. We're not going to win any respect, any prizes or anything for our industry unless we can actually recoup the respect and trust of the public. And the only way we can do that is to deliver on new medicines that can actually help them and that they can afford. And if you don't do that, it doesn't matter what happens, this terrible legacy that we've inherited for the last 40 years of behavior, we won't be able to change it, but we are changing it. And that's why I'm, I'm very encouraged, to be honest, Brady. We, before COVID, we started that. It's very hard. It's very hard to change public perception. But the reality was, if you had an industry which was venal, an industry that really wanted to uh, exploit patients, first of all, number one, I wouldn't be here in, in, under any circumstances. Number two, the vast majority, the vast majority of CEOs in this industry and their staff just wouldn't be there. They're not the people that are in this industry I really walk home and say, how can I help somebody? That's what they do. They do that every day, every night, and they go to work knowing that they're not going to be successful, but they're going to keep on trying. So I agree with you. Yes, January, that picture was there. But look back 10 years, it wouldn't have been like that. And look yeah. forward a few years from now. And hopefully we've regained the trust that this industry deserves. So how, how are you planning to regain that trust? I, I think partially, as we saw, when companies come out with new drugs and they price them well and beyond what you would suggest would be an accurate representation of what that drug costs or what the, the um, patients or the community can handle, it'll be called out. Well, I think what we're going to do very definitely, and that we've begun to do that, as you know, is number one, very direct talk. So when we see individuals who or companies that are abusing the trust made to them, there's no question one has to call that out because it's as if you've got some kind of car salesperson who tells you I've got a brand new set of cars and they're the same. They're, each one of them is a shell. Underneath there's nothing there and they're charging exactly the same as a high-end car that is just beautiful and works and just is fabulous. You've got to call that person out because it sets a bad tone across the entire industry. So I think calling out and being direct about it is very clear. Second is really behaving, walking the talk. I mean, we said we were going to innovate. Let's innovate. Whether that means really investing in finding out whether a drug like remdesivir actually does work, investing in it. Don't just say it works. Invest in it, and that's what Gilead is doing. Invest in it, show that it works, and if it does work, fantastic. The same with Actemra. Roche, invest in it, see does it work, then benefit from it. But what you can't do is take some old generic, 
package it in some new form, no investment involved in it, and then turn around and charge a vast fortune. So yeah. I think call, calling out people is very important. Walking the talk, investing in innovation is the talk. And then the last one, which I think is terribly important, and that is to listen to patients, to be in touch with them. This is, you know, the rare disease area sets the standard. Every single rare disease company that exists knows the patients it's dealing with. It listens to the patient organizations. It understands how best to serve them. And then where possible, where possible, is to really go into Congress and to fight where it really matters, which is to fight on those matters that matter to the patient or can stimulate innovation. What matters to the patient? Having to pay vast sums for their medicine, even though they're insured. Yeah. Even though they're insured. This is nuts. You shouldn't be doing that. There should be nothing coming out of their pockets. Similarly, if there are investors who are willing to take huge sums of money to invest in innovation, there are ways of giving them back their return without charging vast fortunes to patients. There is legislation that can be passed, and there's lots of ideas that have been mooted in this. So I think there are ways of working with Congress and with the Senate and with the White House to make those things happen. But the most important is the moral statement. Yeah. That's yeah. how you win the trust. Yeah. There's, I think, three things I want to ask you to finish this. Number one is, it's a short, short answer. This idea that you have that the CEO pay is disincentivizing innovation, like, do you actually think that's ever going to be overhauled? Could you see a CEO whose pay is tied to drugs in the clinic, patients treated, lives saved versus uh, earnings? Yes. I can because it leads to earnings. Good medicines and good treatments lead to higher sales and lead to treatments and lead, lead to better performance of your company. And when you're focused on the idea that your whole being, your whole organization's value is that to deliver new medicines to patients in the best possible way you can and that you're incented, you're aligned with that assentment, that leads to a better business. Interesting. Two, this is future looking. All right. So I'm just going to take your answer for what it is. A year from now, a year and a half, two years, what does this country or the world look like versus uh, COVID-19? Well, Brady, nobody has a, nobody has a monopoly on, on crystal balls. Yeah. But we do have a little bit that can tell us change will happen. Again, going back to 9-11, that terrible moment changed forever. The United States, the world, it really did. It had a huge ramifications, not just economic, social, political, and even trade across the board. I believe we're going that wasn't that was a, an abuse of the American freedoms to have these terrible people come here. How dare they do that? How dare they? Here you have an invasion. Here you have the United States has been invaded by a virus. It has changed our lives. Tens of millions of people are out of work. Businesses have ground to a halt. The oil price is down in the, in the drain. All of these are variables that will lead to remarkable changes you some countries for example russia depend on the oil price others like iran 
depend on importing, exporting oil? With How will their economies survive? I'm less concerned about their economies and the regimes there than I am about the millions of people who will suffer because of the inability to even eat or work. So I think it's very difficult, very difficult to predict the changes. But I think the changes that we saw in 9-11 are going to be dwarfed by the changes we have here. Um, so the, the final thing, and this is, again, future looking, but maybe easier to answer. Let's say that 10 years from now, a brand new coronavirus comes out of who knows where and jumps from some animal and begins to hit the human population. How would you like the response of this country, the U.S., to look different than it did now? Absolutely. A much higher recognition, an early warning intelligence service that says we know it's coming preparedness for the ability to rapidly sequence, know what that virus is, and have the capability to build in advance, well in advance, the vaccines or the constructs for the vaccines that might work. And then at the same time, to be ready to tripwire to tell the diagnostic companies any supporting medical types of products that need to be uh, put in place. And finally, to be able to reach out to this industry, the biotech industry, and say, we expect you to perform. This is much like going to war. You need to have a, a war plan that is put on the shelf and ready to pull the trigger. But you also need to have put in place some of the reserves required to immediately come out. And I believe that if we learn from this, we can put that all in place all of that so that we can mitigate enormously a future uh, pandemic. But I, like, I, are you saying that there was never any official reaching out to the industry to say, hey, we know this is coming, what can you do about it? And that you guys gathered on your own and said, what can we do about it? We, it was the inverse. We, there may have been informal requests, but there were not formal ones. We actually, a, gr a group of CEOs was invited to the White House and asked what they could do. And very good results came out of that, Brady. Okay, so there was some, okay, that's what I want to make sure. The White House did reach out and say, what can you do for this coming pandemic? That's correct, there was that. But the actual industry as a whole, that industry got together and said, we can't wait, we need to get going. Anything else you want to, uh, you want to talk about? Brady, I, I want to have this conversation one year from now, and let's see what the world has evolved to, because okay. You and I and every person in this country is going through something that nobody's ever gone through before. And each of us is changing. And so as we change, each of us is experiencing a different kind of reality. And I believe that for all of us, the most important thing is to learn from this and to really understand what can we do and what can we make sure that we do to contribute now, three months, six months, and one year from now, make a real difference so that this never occurs again okay we'll do it in one year good and all right you be, you be safe and you be safe too and yeah. uh yeah good to talk to you it's great talking to you okay there's that uh i hope you found that as interesting as i did this industry just feels like it is at an inflection point. When you are ranked 25 out of 25 industries, as far as trust from the general public, you've got a lot of work to do. 
This is an industry built on saving lives, and the general public does not view it that way. And this industry has a lot of work ahead of it in order to rebuild that trust. I'd like to give out some thanks. Thank you to Mabel. Who's Mabel? Mabel is my niece. She's only four. She has a very small bedroom. And I've discovered that that small bedroom is great for recording in. Thank you. I do not have to get on the floor of my closet. So thank you, Mabel, for use of your small bedroom. Now, first rounders. They will be one out May 1st. I would tell you the guess, but it's not recorded yet. And if something goes wrong, then I floated this name and it didn't come out and I'd feel foolish. But there's one coming. And uh, that's it. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. You know the drill. Goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.